Y'all ready to be history? It started. Welcome. Hi. 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 Hello, everyone. To the Pro Audio Suite. These guys are professional. They're motivated. With Tech to the VO stars. George Whittam, founder of Source Elements. Robert Marshall, international audio engineer. Darren Robbo Robertson. And Global Voice. Andrew Peters. Thanks to Tribooth. Austrian Audio. Making passion heard. Source Elements. George the Tech Whittam. And Robbo and AP's international demos. To find out more about us, check the ProAudioSuite.com. Learn up, And this is part two of our talk with Michael Goodman. In this episode, we pick up where we left off and we talk about the Passport VO. I like the fact that there's a restriction to the design. Like, Michael had to decide what those six knobs could do or not do. And so it wasn't like, oh, let's just add more knobs. Let's just make make, make it bigger. I did make uh, add more knobs in the black cab. It's, it's got nine, which is kind you of pushing. You did nine in there, yeah. yeah. But um, no, that's the beauty of when we made the passport. Exactly. We did not add more knobs. We didn't. We, we forced ourselves to work within that restricted design space and say, we have six knobs. We need to do everything we need with these six knobs. If there's more than six knobs, how do you expect an actor to understand what the heck the thing is doing as you add more and more knobs? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. See, we should have looked at the black cab when we were asking for stuff. <laughs> yeah. I have a funny feeling Michael's answer would have been the same. I think it's an excellent way of building simplicity into it. And and really also, it makes you go through the design process. Yeah. And I think it was a fun thing with the passport was exactly that. Because at first it was like so many things, add another knob, add another knob. And then you have to go through that slightly painful yeah. but sharpening process of going like, we can't only have six knobs. How are you really going to do this? It's interesting. Uh, when I was younger, I geeked out a lot on the Japanese culture. Specifically, I loved uh, their uh, propensity for making small pieces of art, right? The whole idea with the uh, ice sculpture. Art should be um, ephemeral. It should be there and it's not there anymore, right? And then the whole idea with uh, writing a poem on a grain of rice, etc. Um, I love compact things. And when we started making hi-fi products, we we also make some uh, headphone listening products at Centrance. Um, I traveled to Japan a lot and I attended these hi-fi shows and I noticed how people are focused on completely different priorities there because apartments are very small in Japan and therefore nobody buys a traditional stereo system with big speakers and all that. Everybody essentially listens in headphones in a tiny little spot, usually on a train on, on their way to work or, or back home. So that culture um, creates a necessity for smaller things. And then I kind of, for some reason, it just kind of stuck with me. I, I like when, you know, essentially when you travel, you don't want to log around a 19-inch rack or even like a 500-series um, lunchbox thing. That, that's why we, we're trying to make these things small. But getting back to uh, Passport VO, um, uh, that that had, the, the restriction there was basically the same one that um, was popularized by uh, Henry Ford, um, who said that you can have your Model T in any color as long as it's black. Black, yeah. <laughs> and then so... <laughs> So basically, we have this, uh, you know, the, the, we have this box, and whatever you, whatever you want to have must yeah. fit in the box, which was good, and it, and it was uh, it was an interesting exercise. Me being the guinea pig, who potentially is going to be the person who uses this thing, uh, and, and you know, I didn't want it too technical, so it was uh, and, and trying to get the terminology something that people like me would understand. Uh, so that that was an interesting exercise for for all of us as well. There was a lot of pushing and pulling between the the there was. Andrew Rob Robert hemispheres 
of the design mm. team. There was. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I was wanting to keep it flexible and let it do more things, be both the, for instance, I wanted it to be the interface that you could take on the road or leave in your control room and run it as your whole studio interface or have it in your booth. And it, and it could work in any place. And Andrew was like, I just want to travel with this yeah. thing. It was it was kind of interesting because it, it was that we were the polar opposites. So you had, yeah. you know, um, Robert on one side, me on the other side, and George and Robbo in the middle. George particularly trying try to make sense of our nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the filter, and I was trying to condense down everything what they wanted to. George was the traffic to cop. Michael, so that Michael didn't <laughs> end up having to be the, yeah. the traffic cop. It got out of control uh, at one point. Uh, yeah, the thread yes, did, did expand at one point, I remember distinctly. Yes. And I was like, wait, no, I was supposed to be protecting Michael. I think, I think that was important, giving Michael one point of communication because it would have been maddening for him. Exactly. Well, I have to say, I, I actually enjoyed the process. I mean, there, there was a lot of creativity and in, in, uh, ideation uh, throughout the whole thing. And uh, if you have, you know, uh, I, I love ideation myself, so I'm not really necessarily up, up against it, opposed to it, as long as it eventually comes to um, a solid, well-defined yeah. feature set, which I think we have. So uh, that that whole process, you know, that, that worked very well for me. And I do appreciate, uh, you know, George coming in as a traffic cop <laughs> and essentially directing a lot of that traffic. And an architect as well. Can I just say with all the drawings that he had to do? Yeah, yes. well, I had fun trying to figure out a way to draw a signal flow diagram, which I'd never really done anything. And and I, and I know there's proper nomenclature and symbolism and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff in drawing one. I didn't know that, so I just did my own thing. But it really was cool because it, it helped. Us, it helped me tremendously See it. understand yeah. what goes to what. And we revised that uh, signal flow diagram. Oh, geez, I don't know, seven or eight times, probably? Uh, yeah, probably a lot more. Oh, yeah. yeah. A million times. Yeah. I, th- I, think, I think it was the blend of having the signal flow diagram so you could really see what was exactly going to happen yeah. combined with the mock-up of the final device. Yeah. So you could get an imagination of how it was really going to work in the field. Yeah. yeah. And and I th- I think it re- I think we really came up with something that fits Centrance in the sense that it's sm- it fits, obviously, the form factor. But it's super flexible and unique. You're not finding this Absolutely in any not. other interface. Not, yeah. No, I think it'll continue to be unique because it is so purpose-built that other manufacturers will look at it and go, right. why? That's yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because there's, there's nothing else out there that's been purpose-built for voiceover artists. I think that was the, that was the initial motivation was... For years, voiceover artists have had to take stuff that's built for, for, for music engineers yeah. and, and rework it to make it for voiceover. And it seems like this is such a niche industry that, you know, a larger manufacturer, you know, might might not necessarily see a lot of business potential there. So I think that was a good match between our size being a smaller company and then a market being smaller that, that we were like, okay, that, that makes sense. I, th- I, th- I think you see that in its price point. Yeah. You know, someone who's looking at it really basically goes, I can get a two channel USB interface, two microphones USB interface for right. 100 bucks. No, this is not and that. It's like if you see that in there, then you're not seeing what this is. Yeah, at right. All. It's not for you. It's, it, 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 there's almost like when you set something at a price point, you're, you're trying to give a very clear, I mean, not only you're saying that it's worth it, obviously, but you're making a very clear s- statement that this is priced for professionals. And yeah. it's every, worth every penny to a professional who will understand the value. And we've already had people 
stand up and say, I believe it. I see what you're saying. And they've plunked down the cash. Yeah. And let's be honest, for, for a working voiceover professional, you know, um, not everybody, of course, but a lot of those guys can make that much money in 15 <laughs> seconds. Pays for itself in one gig. That is true. Yeah, exactly. So so we, 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 we knew that pricing was going to be tricky, but we also knew that we had a restricted space in which we had to work. We can't, you know, we wanted the value to be there, but we also have to make a profit. Michael has to make a profit. And, um, and you know, we, we had ideas that would have driven the price even higher, um, you know, quite a bit that, you know, we could have implemented, but we didn't want to do that. There's a certain point where we thought, let's keep it under that. Well, I remember one was how we handled the, and, and this is actually something I have a question with, with the English channel, like, we wanted to make the passport flexible enough to use an external preamp instead of the built-in one. And I know that was important to Andrew. And one of the things I find with the English channel is that when you come out line level XLR and you go into the court caster, uh, turning the court caster down is not enough. You you, you got to pad the other stages beforehand to get it because you're kind of feeding a mic pre into a mic pre. And I remember that was one of the things where we had to except that we were going to go through that chip, if I remember right, and we didn't get a pure bypass of the mic. Right, because that was going to raise the... Yeah. That was going to raise the parts count and the cost in other ways, and it was such a... the switching. It was something where it was going to add cost to make a very small percentage of users. It would not have made a difference to most yeah. users. But even, even based on that, I have to say that if you look at the new Neumann interface... Yeah, how much is that thing? Like $1,200, right? Well, no, no, more than that. Well, I, I, it will be like over two 2000 US. 18 from what I understand. 18 yeah. I'm sorry, and it doesn't do as much as the... Uh, and also, when you're talking about having, you know, bypassing the internal preamp, it doesn't. Oh, really? <laughs> it doesn't. Like, nowhere nowhere on that new Neumann interface can you bypass a preamp. Fascinating. I would wonder if that's a, a subject of pride, you know. We give you the best preamp in the land. Why would you want to bypass yeah. that? I would suggest that Probably. would be the case. Yeah. Well, the irony is that they sell a preamp. Like, they sell a very expensive preamp outboard preamp so you would think that they would have that do you, do you want to know what device that is it's it's the reincarnation it's the perennial it's like a locust that comes out of the ground every eight years yeah and the last one that emerged out of the ground was the mini me the mini me from apogee the apogee mini me hmm. yeah badass preamp badass converter yeah and soft clipping it had that limiter but really expensive interface that's just going to I'm expensive I'm going to be the best kind of thing is what it's trying to be but it's not flexible mini me is not a convincing name no, 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 it's the not, it's really. well, if, that, if that movie hadn't come <laughs> the out mini me? Yeah. I'm sure yeah. <laughs> well, the, yeah, I'm sure when that movie that's came true. out but really the mini me is is a kind of it wants to be the original AD1000 which I have several of those and those are those are great. Yeah, but they don't use FireWire or USB, right? Uh, the Mini-Me, I believe, is USB. Are you sure? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure. It runs as USB and a separate preamp. But I don't think it has any protocol. See, that's the thing. Like, As soon as you add a protocol to the unit, like a USB protocol, a FireWire protocol, you're now dating your product. It is now locked in time. It's now going to be obsolete at some point. Correct. Like this happened in FireWire. Actually, FireWire just became officially obsolete with, uh, I think, Ventura. If you have a FireWire device. So even if you have like a FireWire to Thunderbolt adapter, yep, it doesn't matter. They dropped off the protocol. It's gone. Poof. 
Well, the lightning jack is about to go the way of the dodo. Yes, that's right. And mm. oh, really, because of Europe, Thanks, that's a whole Europe. other can of worms, <laughs> yeah. right, Michael? Because I know you spent a long time dealing with the lightning port and the what is it called? Made for Apple MFA MFI 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 made for I phone right made for iphone and you didn't you wasn't that like a major stumbling block to getting the first mixer face built and designed correct we we started uh, down that path uh, in our hi-fi devices because we wanted to make these headphone amplifiers that plugged into the phone because a lot of people started moving their music collection onto the phone and using the phone as the playback device right and then that kind of translated into uh, recording products as well so um apple decided to keep that you know, walled garden ecosystem all to themselves. And then as a manufacturer making a, a, a peripheral device, a product that would interface with, with the Apple iPhone, iPad, etc., you had to go through a, a lengthy bureaucratic process to establish yourself as a registered developer, essentially, um, in the MFI uh, ecosystem. And they policed that hard, to the point, I mean, it's it, it got, got ridiculous. Um, so the lightning jack actually is quite sophisticated. There's a chip inside, and that chip has a, um, a serial number, a laser laser etched serial number inside. So every lightning jack in the world has a unique seri- serial number. Believe it or not, this information is less relevant now, but uh, it used to be relevant before. So what had happened is, um, if there was a cable, a lightning uh, cable, lightning to USB, that was not made per spec any cable that you made as a as an mfi manufacturer had to be certified by an apple approved lab and it had to do all the things that a uh, lightning um cable had to do it was very annoying when they started they enforced it all the time and then what what they ended up doing is there's there's been a, a plethora of chinese cables that were not approved so apple was able because they actually had control over the chips inside of the lightning jacks they were able to remotely disable cables Wow. And then we'd get wow. these, we still get these calls. It's like, man, I, I plug this lightning to USB cable into your product and it doesn't pass audio. It's your product. No, it's the cable. That cable just hasn't paid the fee. And by the way, you had to pay the fee to Apple if you were a MFI developer. Um, the, the manufacturer of the cable either didn't pass the test or didn't pay the fee or whatever. And their cable had been remotely disabled. Yeah. Wow. Which is bizarre. But that, that went on for a while. And uh, after a while, we were like, you know, we're too small to be able to deal with this because they were like constant updates. So then you just have to get the your own interface adapter so you, you, you couldn't plug yes. straight into the phone anymore. You had to have some stupid dongle so Apple could get their fee. Uh, they, they, they got their fee one way or another. But now, with uh, thanks to Europe, it's just going to be USB-C and that, that whole lightning uh, adapter w- w- is no more. Oh, so let me ask you this. Is the MFI certification, whatever you want to call it, is that now dead because of USB-C or is it still in there somewhere? There is no special communication happening anymore because USB-C is supposed to be generic and you had to announce yourself and you had to be in the database and that's how they tracked you essentially. But now there is no communication there. And then so um, now it's just a just a, like a Windows machine. You you plug a, a peripheral, a USB peripheral into a Windows machine, and um, if it's a generic peripheral, it pulls up a generic driver and knows what to do, knows how to how to work with it. With uh, Mac, it's been like that forever. 
and they've uh, written great drivers, a lot better than Windows, so that you, any audio interface you plug it into a Mac, it works right away. Yeah, as long as it's a core, com- what do they call it, compliant or core audio compliant? Core audio, right. core, core audio compliant. Yeah. Right, exactly. And then so it's going to be exactly like that with the iPhone and iPad. It's been like that uh, with the iPad for about a year now. So um, just one less hurdle to jump uh, over, which... That's progress. Had, <laughs> yes, yes, and that's good. Because we had this conversation the other day when you were coaching me on, on um, you know, how to make the proper, proper connections here. And uh, I, I was pulling my hair out trying trying to get things working. And I realized that it works in this environment, not in that environment and, and, and all that. Oh, my gosh. I re- honestly, when I, when I was writing that, I, I started doing my... I went down the rat hole on the developer page of Apple, right? To understand better how the iOS audio AV, you know, system works. And it was like, there was like seven distinctly different and unique modes of operation. Because it's trying to make all these decisions for you. It's like, uh, can we interrupt this phone call? Can we interrupt this movie, right? Right. Oh my gosh, it is so complicated. It's, it is pretty annoying. It's all complicated on the developer side so that you, the user, don't have to think about it. But they make those decisions for you, and that's what runs us into trouble as pros. You know, I wish, again, because of iPhone 15 Pro and the new chipset, maybe this is going to change. But um, yeah, I wish we could really control our devices you know, and say, I want to use this as the input. I want to use that as the output. I want to send this over here. On the Windows side, there is this uh, protocol that's been around for for a while called ASIO. ASIO is the one that is direct to device. And yes. It was developed that way uh, a long time ago, so that it's made by Steinberg. Yeah, yeah, and and that would not be interrupted if you if you're playing a YouTube video or a phone call comes in. You, you just your session continues to be solid. Right. Nowadays, with the problem with ASIO is that it can't share very well. That the whole point of it is that you shouldn't share. Yeah. It should be like point to point, indestructible. You know what I mean? On the Mac OS, it's got it with Core Audio where it shares it just fluidly yet. And the only thing that you have to make sure of, which is the same with any situation, is you just keep, if I'm sharing it, we have to agree on what sample rate we're going to be at. The device yeah. can't be at more than one sample rate. But there's still weird stuff on the Apple side where, like, is the volume up and down button on the keyboard going to change the output level of my device? Exactly. I don't know. Is the gain input gain setting on Mac OS going to be effective on the input level, or would that be? If that device is set as the output in system preferences, then your knob becomes a control if that device is controllable. Not all devices are controllable, and you'll see that some of them, if you select them as the output, the slider becomes grayed out. But who decides that? The manufacturer of the device, the writer of the driver, or the Mac? Uh, audio stack or whatever that's the that's the device in reality it's it's uh it's it's everything it's it's uh, a little bit of 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 both so some decisions apple has to make some decisions manufacturing make sure tries to make but then apple could reverse those decisions right, right. <laughs> at their own volition <laughs> anytime you have a, a, a competition between a whole bunch of sound sources like phone, um, you know, movie playing, another movie playing in this other window, and then you know your your audio thing, the the system has to decide what what's the what's the priority, which which of these programs really has to be streamed, and which other ones have to be muted, or or do you want to just mix everything together, which which is kind of kind of madness, right? Yeah iPhone does some weird stuff. Like I, I know we're going on a, a no, rattle. It's, it's but. very useful. It's like the way the way a Nexus device works. You can just they're like patch cables, and if you send two devices to go out the same patch cable, 
It just mixes everything together. The the Wasabi Windows driver is a little bit more flexible and a little bit more core audio like than ASIO. It mixes. It mixes everything. And they, they worked hard on doing that. Here's a problem. Because it has to mix so many different streams, uh, again, from these movies and radio stations and everything else that you could be listening to and watching at the same time in the same Windows computer, what they do is they have to align the sample rates from all these different sources. The process of aligning the sample rates um, results in a delay and latency. So that's completely inapplicable to music recording. Robbie would know about that. And then so, you know, um, if you're watching a movie and the sound comes in uh, 30 milliseconds later, you don't know it. It's just, it, it doesn't matter. If you're recording music and sound comes back 30 milliseconds later, it ruins the take. So I wonder if the latency in Wasapi is similar to the latency in Core Audio because more. anything that's native, every audio engineer knows it's more. It's a lot more in Wasapi. Core, core Audio is is just uh, very, very well uh, tuned. It's like Wasapi and fast. It's like Wasapi and ASIO combined in a way. Uh, it, it, wasapi generally introduces delay. And that, I mean, it introduces a lot of convenience at the price of the delay. Hmm. Whereas ASIO is as little delay as you can have. So it, essentially the delay through the computer is about two milliseconds each way. And then the rest of it is the interface. And then, um, and it, but it's point to point. There are no decisions to make. So there's no um, pausing to think whether, you know, we should do it this way or that way. That's the beauty of ASIO. And Core Audio is very much like that. Since we're talking about Windows a little bit, is it too early for you to tell us, Michael, when you connect the Passport VO with its two USB buses or two USB interfaces to a PC is the best choice for the user in most cases going to be, what do they call it, MME or Windows Classic Wave Driver or Direct Sound? or what, What's going to be the optimal setting, do you think? WhatsApp usually is the best if you know what you're doing and uh, you, you're not sending several different streams into your interface, right? Right. And you won't be because with this design... Each USB right. bus is a, basically a, sim a simple two-in, two-out exactly. interface, right? So you're, you're, the hardware, it's ha all that mixing that we try to do with software and sometimes not very successfully is being handled in the analog domain or, le or internally inside the unit, right? So we don't have to even worry about that anymore. That, that was a very smart idea or path. Oh, that's the beauty of it. No drivers, no... Yes. Nothing to that's install. That's the goal. It's just plug and play. Yeah, you could have two separate applications running at the same time. One could be, you know, um, uh, sharing applications such as Source Connect. The other one can be a recording application, right, such as a DAW, a local DAW. And then... Adobe Audition's a popular choice on <laughs> Windows. Th those yeah. applications could actually meet inside of the device, inside of Passport VO, and not really conflict with each other as they would be if you were trying to mix inside the machine. Yeah. This is why we did it, because on Windows, this ability to have two applications use the same device at the same time can cause huge tech support issues. Huge. And one approach is to basically have someone like George help you out and figure it out going into drivers and turn them off of exclusive mode and things like that and then crossing your fingers that it works or no, I have Mike McGonagall do that 
<laughs> I won't touch that, <laughs> that stuff anymore on Windows. <laughs> or just do it this way and dedicate one interface to one application, the yeah. other interface to the other, and then do all your cross-patching and your blending in the analog domain with... Well, that's unique. Nobody else does that, right? And, that's, and that internally, Michael, just to make that really clear, it's an analog signal path internally, right? Like that's all, it's staying completely analog. Yes, it's an analog mixer with which has two inputs which happen to be digital streams from the computer. But they've been converted from digital to analog. To analog and become analog. Mixing in analog introduces zero latency. Right. It's the, you know, that, that old technology we're going back to, the British invasion. <laughs> um, and uh, it's seamless, essentially. There are no conflicts when you're mixing an analog. Yeah, no sample rates to coordinate. George, it's a bit like when you use the Behringer interface to plug externally back into someone <laughs> exactly. else's interface. Exactly, a problem solver. It's, it's that, but it's all in the box with knobs and switches to control it. Instead, of Like you could have your DAW running at 2496, maybe, 24-bit 96, and you can have your Zoom or Source Connect running at whatever the heck the client wants sample rate it needs to be. And they will not step on each other's toes at all. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, that's completely transparent in, in the analog domain. So I think that was a brilliant move. I can't wait. That's such a cool thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hey, listen, I can't uh, wait either. So um, uh, a, a small development on that front. Uh, I know everybody wants to know uh, status. Um, uh, we are, as I mentioned before, we have um, three separate paths here. and We're about to choose one. Uh, with regards to the actual USB chip. So I've, I've laid out all of the analog uh, circuitry. It's already done. So all that mixing that we've just talked about, that's all already um, in the design. Cool. It's designed and it's waiting to be prototyped. Um, I am pausing be and not sending this to prototyping because there's one uh, additional block that needs to be finalized, and that block is the USB portion of the design. Actually, there's two USB portions of the design because, as we just said, there's two USB ports and there's two different computers that you could connect this thing to at the same time, and then it would then blend between the signals from those two computers. So for the USB chip that, that goes inside of there, the, the two USB chips, we learned recently, unfortunately, that the chip that we've been using for like 12 years or so is now out of production. And the, the manufacturer does have a, a newer version, but it's larger and more expensive, but larger part is more important here because, uh, mm. yes, we do have that small box and it just wouldn't fit. <laughs> so we started a big search for another chip. Now, we found a, a manufacturer in Taiwan, which is a smaller manufacturer, and it, it makes a chip that is uh, smaller <laughs> also. And uh, that seems to fit the bill, but it's um, we wanted to make sure that we kind of wanted to vet them, you know. It's just, yeah. You don't just slap any random chip in there and hope for the best. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like a couple of couple of guys in in an office. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are you going to be around next year? Yeah. So um, I have a friend in Taiwan who visited them yesterday oh, wow. and uh, sent me a, a lengthy email. Anyway, so he visited them. Uh, he lives in, in a ne neighboring city. So it's an hour drive for him. Not that big a deal. Um, so he, he popped over and he had a meeting and he said it was a very pleasant conversation. Um, they use, um, uh, you know, the... There's 
Taiwan is where they make all of the chips pretty much in the world these days. So they use a couple of foundries, foundries, the, uh, a plant that makes chips. And then so you, they use two very reputable suppliers for that and everything is uh, well tested. I was like, do they test these things? You know, how's the reliability? What's the, how, do they have any large customers? It turns out they're not, this company is not well known in America, um, in the West yet, but they are known in China and they're shipping significant volume into China. Um, so I think there's the reason to believe that it's going to be a reliable uh, supplier. And so my my, my uh, friend there in Taiwan who actually works for a large contract manufacturer is like, yeah, you should go ahead and, and, and work with them. Not a problem. I don't see a problem. Milestone moment right here, folks. Mm. It just happened yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, so um, we're like, oh, okay, well then, thank you. So we're not you know, uh, concerned about the, the their longevity or, and all that. So um, there was also a third path which was there's still a stock available of the old chip that that's gone out of production and we can put that in there but that would just kind of be a, a step backwards mm-hmm. you know putting putting something in the product that you know is not going to be made anymore yeah. are, th- are there any features on the new chip like it goes up to 384 it or does does your taxes it, it does do your taxes um, that would be important <laughs> but the 384 I think less so uh, because I'm joking of course um, because you know who needs 384 in real life uh, audiophiles <laughs> love their 384 except there's no content to play (laughs) but you know you gotta buy your DAC it's it's the album of mouse farts Um, (laughs) to each his own yeah so one other thing I want to touch on before we wrap it is is I also know that you have invested in a rapid prototype or what would you call it a prototyping you can make your own boards now right it's a Pick and place machine. That's the official name. Pick and place. Gotcha. Yeah, electronic components uh, these days don't go through uh, little holes in the side of the PC board. Instead, they're just um, they're planar. Yeah, they're just uh, put on the surface. And uh, some of these components are smaller than you know one millimeter by one millimeter. They're really tiny. Yeah. And then uh, it used to be you know ten years ago that they're larger, maybe three, four, five millimeters. You can actually use uh, tweezers and just put them on the on the board yourself. It'd take forever, but you could do it. Right. And then you'd put this whole board with all these components that you just very carefully put on the on the board, and you would put it inside of an oven and heat it up for about ten minutes. There there'd be a, a particular heat profile, and that would solidify all of the solder and then uh-huh. connect all the components together. And after you had a board for prototyping, that was a thing to do nowadays components are so small that even if you have a a magnifying glass it's just you know uh, if you partied the night before your hand is not as steady anymore (laughs) (laughs) so therefore assembling these things and and i'm not saying that people should not party but uh it kind of puts a a cramp in your style anyway so this uh automated pick and place machine that we have now um it does that for you it's a robot and it just kind of like it has a tiny little suction cup at the end of a needle, so it it, it just moves over that that the, the the hand moves over to where you have your components on a reel. They're not like a bobbin. This is reel, and then just like picks one up uh, by uh, applying a little bit of suction, kind of sucks it out of the reel, and then moves it to an appropriate place on the board and just kind of releases gently. And it can handle things that a human hand cannot handle. So from that standpoint, it's uh, it's a huge wow. benefit, and it actually does it uh, fast, and it doesn't party the night before. From you know, <laughs> what I know, it doesn't ask for raises, and it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So I have so many questions. I mean, I'm dying to see one of these working in action. I'm sure I could probably find one on YouTube, but 
How, how long does it take to populate a board that would go inside the mixer phase or board um, About 10 minutes at this point. Wow, Whereas if you amazing. do it by hand, you're, you're probably like at it for a couple hours. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. And you're developing cramps. When does it get to the point where it's like just by order? Like when does it get to the point where you can make your board, you can assemble your board, you've got a 3D printer? Because I really like the case for the English Channel. A lot of manufacturing is like, okay, we're going to make a product, and then there you have 60,000 of some plastic thing, and and then maybe they sell, maybe they don't, and you just have a lot of extra waste, you know? Been there, done and that. And here's like making these things as needed, right? Uh, the 3D printing, yeah, you ju- we, we make everything for order, and it's it, we, we've been sheepish about it for, for, for a while uh, until we got to the point where we figured out how to make it look good. And and also make it reliable so it doesn't break. So uh, these three D printed pr- parts at this point are uh, completely usable. I mean, they're not uh, toys anymore. They're they're functional pieces of uh, mechanical design, and um, we love that because we can change colors. You know, like you, you can get this. You know, the the tray, the commander console, we call it for the English Channel. You can get it in lime, lemon, red, blue, white, black, whatever. Great. <laughs> so and and this is so easy for us to do we don't uh you know uh, otherwise we would have to order you know thousands of each color and then store them somewhere and now it's just we we just have these um reels of filament which is this um you know it's just essentially plastic out of which everything's being made and then we can make them to order so that's really great and then as, as far as how long does it take well the box that we make everything in is still aluminum so that uh, that box, fortunately for us, uh, we make a lot of different products inside that same box. So we can order it uh, by a boatload from the manufacturer because there is a minimum order quantity. But uh, we figured that you know the, the we will go through the entire order because we will put different products in that same box, and uh, that way it we can afford to buy a whole bunch at once. So. One more, I, the board thing is amazing. So after, so after you've dropped tiny, tiny little components over this little board, so is that the point where it goes into the oven? And how do you keep the little tiny, tiny, tiny pieces from moving around? You squeeze paste solder, solder paste, the official name. You squeeze uh, a layer of this gooey, it's just like toothpaste, but it's uh, dark gray. Yeah. And um, it has the property that when you heat it up, it solidifies and it becomes metal. So, but uh, um, basically, you have you get a stencil, which is this thin uh, metal plate, steel plate, very thin, uh, less than a millimeter, and then holes for the components are laser cut inside that steel plate. And then uh, you put that steel plate over the board, um, line it up correctly, and then you use a squeegee to essentially squeeze that paste over the stencil, and then where the stencil has the holes, the paste um, drops through the holes onto the PC board and then forms the tiny little squares in appropriate places. Then, uh, they're, they're a little sticky, just like toothpaste. And then when a component drops onto these two squares, for example, if a component has two pins, right, it kind of gets stuck in the, in the paste. And it doesn't move. And then you can handle the board. I mean, you don't want to throw the board because the components will fly off. But if you carefully handle it and carefully move it into the oven, then um, the components will not move. And then what actually happens in the oven is a beautiful thing um, due to surface tension. Um, essentially, the components, once they get uh, they heat up, they line up because the tiny little solder balls. So essentially, you have liquid 
um, metal at that point. If you remember uh, the movie Terminator, there was this other Terminator guy that was essentially made out of liquid metal, and he could reassemble himself at all points. Remember that? Oh yeah, T two. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so like that's liquid tension. Is like when when liquid gets together, it just kind of just forms this one thing. Wants to make a ball. Wants to make a ball, and that 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 is what uh, allows these tiny little components to get soldered to the pads uh, in a very even sort of a glowing uh, 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 pattern where all the solder gets utilized and none of it is left uh, around because it all kind of, you know, tenses up and kind of sort of sucks into one, uh, you know, one bowl and, and each, in each little pad. That's cool, man. Thanks for describing that. That's Mike, really neat. Michael, I actually had one quick question. With the faces, can you cut your own faces right now? When you say faces, what are you referring to? Like all your pieces are made out of the same metal, sort of two pieces of metal. Oh, I understand. And, and right now... They always have the same four outside screw holes to hold them together, but then on the top of it, there's different holes for different knobs. Mm -hmm. And what I'm asking is, do you need to make seven holes in this one, three slots for a different switch, and you're able to do that all um, at your place now? I mean, could you theoretically just... No, we still do it at a supplier, but good question, yes. Um, So the official term for this is platform strategy, is when you can make a lot of different things out of one thing. Um, another official term, if you want to keep going with the MBA speak, <laughs> design for postponement <laughs> is what we're using here, if you want to be official about it, which means that you can make the decision on what the heck it is that you're building at the very last step, right? Which also allows 3D printing is the same thing, right? You postpone the differentiation of the product. Um, and then you can make, you can actually choose what you're building the day when you ship that thing, right? Uh, Toyota has uh, pioneered that in the eighties where the, with the whole just in time strategy and all that. And because they, they were able to, uh, reduce the amount of stuff that they held at their warehouses, which were huge anyway. So what happens with these products is on top of the product is this plastic overlay. It's actually a sticky uh, it's, a, it's a sticker, yeah, it's a thick sticker um, made out of polycarbonate. It's a polycarbonate overlay with an adhesive uh, backing that we very carefully lay in this, uh, you know, um, uh, existing uh, hole. And then that sticker we print. And then we, fortunately, we have a supplier who, who doesn't want us to print thousands of them. They, they can print, you know, a hundred at a time. And that, and that those stickers themselves are not that expensive, as, uh, and that therefore we can get a hundred stickers of each product, and then essentially put the sticker on the product the day we assemble the product and the day we ship it to the customer, which allows us to be a lot more flexible than a traditional manufacturing plant. So then, then if you have the ability to drill your own holes and slots at some point, whatever CNC machine that is, we have that. You, there you go. You do. Oh, yeah, well, then, yeah, yeah. There, oh, there I, I haven't let you into the warehouse yet. You should come back. I'd love to. Yeah. He's on his way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's leaving now. <laughs> and on that note, as Andrew would say. <laughs> yes. Well, that was fun. Is it over? The Pro Audio Suite. With thanks to Trimer. And Austrian Audio. Recorded using Source Connect. Edited by Andrew Peters. And mixed by Robbo. Got your own audio issues? Just ask Robbo.com. tech support from George the Tech Wizard. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and join in the conversation on our Facebook group. To leave a comment, suggest a topic, or just say g'day, drop us a note at our website. ProAudioSuite.com.